Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. This is Farfetch Fables. Welcome to show number 42. Here we are already into February. It feels like January just slipped by without so much as a how do you do. And while I live in a temperate climate where the difference between summer and winter is maybe between 10 and 15 degrees, I'm sure others who live in the deep, dark cold would love nothing more than for winter to be on its merry way. I'm not one to want to rush time along. The older I get, the happier I am to let time unwind at a slower pace. But unwind it does. And so we have our first episode for February 2015. This week we have two stories. Our first story is by Alex Schwartzman, titled Requiem for a Drood, and is timed with the release of his short story collection Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma, which was released on Amazon yesterday. I've had the privilege to read the collection, and I highly recommend it. Alex has put together a fantastic array of short stories, and with the story we are running today, just one of many featuring Conrad Brent. A little bit about Alex. Mr. Schwartzman is a writer and game designer from Brooklyn, New York. More than 60 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Galaxy's Edge, Daily Science Fiction, and many other venues. He's the winner of the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction. He edits Unidentified Funny Objects, an annual anthology of humorous science fiction and fantasy. You can find him online at alexschwartzman.com. Requiem for a Drood is read for us today by Mark the Encaffeinated One Kilfoil. Mark loves fiction, so much so he's written some, such as the Parsec-nominated Tainted Roses, read quite a lot, a library of over a thousand half-read books and growing, and now narrates it, sometimes actually recorded for others. He's found that volunteering for a dozen years in radio was a decent way to get a full-time job as program director at a community radio station in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada but not such a great way to finish his thesis, so he stopped at his master's in computer science. 
He can be heard frequently on chsrfm.ca, and two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts and can be found at encaffeinated.ca and theweirdshow.com. He likes cats enough to pet them, but not enough to own one, and computers enough to own several, but pet none of them. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate, that will require life extension. So he eagerly awaits the ability to upload into a computer, if that hasn't already happened, and this isn't all just a simulation. And so, without further delay, here is Requiem for a Drood by Alex Schwartzman, as read by Mark Kilfoyle. My job that morning was to banish a demon, but I was determined to finish my cup of coffee first. I sipped my java in front of Demetrios's warehouse in Sunset Park, enjoying the panoramic view of the Manhattan skyline and the New York Harbor. Next to me, Demetrios was shaking like a leaf. "'What in the world are you thinking, Conrad?' Demetrios spoke in his typical rabbit-fire fashion. "'You're just going to go in there alone to face this infernal thing, without any help or backup from others at the watch, without even a priest. This is all kinds of crazy.' I can handle it, I said, trying to project casual confidence. You did ask for this to be resolved quickly, and it's not like I haven't dealt with an occasional demon before. In fact, I've never even seen any demons. I'm not in any way equipped to deal with a supernatural being of that magnitude. That's the bad news. The good news is I've never heard of a demon showing up in Brooklyn. Even if one arrived, it wouldn't be slumming in Demetrios's warehouse. And if, by some miracle, a major baddie decided to take up residence here, Demetrios wouldn't have survived the encounter long enough to come crying for my help. Something else was going on. But if the guy with the checkbook wanted to believe the job to be extremely dangerous, who was I to dissuade him? Quickly, yes, said Demetrios. You wouldn't believe how far behind this has made his fall with the deliveries. My customers are screaming bloody murder. On top of everything, there's a shipment of Sumatran persimmons that is already beginning to rot. So I hope you really know what you're doing. I don't relish the thought of having to scrape what's left of you off the container walls. That's the Demetrios I know and love. Sentimental to the end. Here, hold this. I handed him the empty foam cup and headed for the entrance. The warehouse was packed with every kind of package and crate imaginable. Huge metal shipping containers clustered in the center, with just enough room left to maneuver them in and out. Round the edges, mountains of smaller parcels occupied every nook and cranny, arranged in an order apparent only to Demetrios and his staff. There was plenty of room to hide for whatever was haunting the building. Since I didn't know what sort of trouble to expect, I brought as many weapons, charms, and amulets as I could carry without making my reliance on such tools apparent. I've made a lot more enemies than friends over the years, and having any of them learn the truth would be incredibly dangerous. Far as I know, I'm unique. Only one out of every 30,000 people is born gifted. They can see magic and cast it. I can see perfectly. Casting is another story. Not even my superiors at the watch know about my disability. I suspect they wouldn't keep me around if they ever found out. So I pretend to be a badass wizard and do my job well, giving no one cause to think otherwise. One day I hope to find a cure for my condition. Or failing that, 
at least a damn good explanation. I worked my way through the labyrinth of packages until I heard faint growling sounds emanating from a few aisles over. I pulled out a revolver loaded with silver bullets doused in holy water. Cliché, I know, but in my experience, only the most effective solutions get to become clichés in the first place. Weapon drawn, I advanced slowly towards the noise. I turned the corner of a ceiling-high shelving unit stocked with wooden crates and found myself face to face with a Lovecraftian nightmare. The creature was shaped like a ten-foot-tall bulldog, with several rows of jagged teeth protruding from its oversized mouth. It stared at me with cold fish eyes and emitted a low rumble from deep within its ugliest sin belly. Definitely not a demon, I smiled in relief as I studied the tell-tale shimmer, barely visible around the critter's frame. Nice doggy, I told it as I rummaged through the inner pockets of my trench coat, moving very slowly so as not to spook it. I withdrew a plastic pill bottle filled with orange powder. Want a treat? I said in a soothing voice as I holstered the revolver and struggled momentarily with the child-proof cover. Annoyed with my apparent lack of desire to run away terrified, the critter let out a thunderous roar that I hope Demetrios could hear outside. While it was busy posturing, I took a pair of quick steps forward and flung the contents of the pill bottle at its midsection. The monstrous visage quivered, gradually losing its shape and disappeared. At my feet lay a furry little animal that looked like an ugly koala bear, knocked out cold by the sleeping powder. The Sumatran changeling snoring on the ground before me was a harmless creature. Its kind project images of big, scary monsters in order to repel predators, but they're all bark and no bite. Poor thing must have gotten into the persimmon shipment and munched the long journey away, happy in the container full of its favorite snacks. The boat and orange mix would keep the changeling dormant until I get it to a buddy of mine, the Bronx Zoo, who cared for a menagerie of supernatural animals. I checked the rest of the building to make sure there were no more changelings, also just to be nosy. Demetrios ran the city's largest shipping company that handled arcane imports, and I was always curious to know what he was up to. After a sufficient amount of time spent wandering the aisles, I took off my trench coat and wrapped it gently around the changeling. Carrying the bundle under my arm, I exited the warehouse. That was one nasty hell spawn. I smiled at Demetrios, who was pacing nervously outside. See, it even made me break a sweat. Is it gone now? Did you banish it? He demanded. It will not be bothering you again, I said with utmost confidence. Demetrios was thrilled to pay me handsomely for a morning's work, and all it cost me was a vial of sleeping powder. What's more, he would tell anyone who cared to listen about how I went one-on-one -on -one with a demon and won. So grows the legend of Conrad Brent. When I drove off from Demetrios's parking lot, I noticed another car pulling under traffic behind me. I was being followed by amateurs. The black Lincoln Town car lingering in my rearview mirror had stalked me along the congested Brooklyn streets without any grace or subtlety. His driver must have thought he was very clever, always keeping one or two vehicles between us. I made a few turns, just to be sure. The Lincoln stayed with me, conspicuous as a polar bear in the desert. Sensing my concern, my car's various magical protections began to activate. 
To say that my car didn't look like much would be an understatement. It was an 84 Oldsmobile with crooked bumpers, a few months overdue for a car wash. On the inside, though, it sported more nasty tricks than the Batmobile. It had the best offensive enchantments money could buy, and few that were literally priceless. All of them woke up as the car prepared itself for a possible confrontation. Some of the arcane shields interfered with the radio, which only served to annoy me further. I pulled over and watched the Lincoln pull into a parking spot a few yards behind me. I got out of the car, strolled over there, and tapped on the driver's side tinted window. Hey there, chum. I got news for you. You aren't very good at this tailing thing. So either leave me alone and go back to picking up fares at the airport, or roll down this window and explain what it is you want. The driver didn't respond. Instead, the passenger door opened, and a petite redhead in a business suit climbed out. Don't frighten the help, Mr. Brent. He was simply doing his job. There was a healthy amount of amusement in her voice, as though she was delighted by this turn of events. She spoke with a hint of a British accent. Her looks and her voice were almost enough for me to forgive the imposition. Almost. Well, I grumbled, he wasn't doing it very well. On the contrary, she said. I intended for you to see us. I had no doubt that a man of your reputation would notice being followed. What I really wanted to see was how you'd handled it. She offered me a business card. According to the fancy font, her name was Moira O'Leary, and she was a security consultant. Watching someone react to a perceived threat is very instructive. I like to learn as much as I can about the people I'm going to work with. I admit that you're rather... Direct approach was delightfully unexpected. I'm glad I managed to entertain you, I said. But what makes you think we're going to be working together? Oh, we will. Oh, we will, she smiled. Your boss owes my client a favor or two. I'm sure he'll be in touch with you shortly. He might even say, pretty please. Not bloody likely. Mose didn't have to say please because no one was foolish enough to question his orders. When he said jump, you jumped, and you didn't dare to ask how high. My organization isn't in the habit of owing favors. Your client must be pretty special, I said, fishing for a little more information. Turned out Ms. Security Consultant wasn't going to make me guess. Of course he's special, she said sweetly. He's Bradley Holcomb. O'Leary wasn't kidding. People at the offices of the watch were falling all over themselves to accommodate your real estate magnate boss. I was told to assist him in any way I could, with special emphasis on the fact that these orders came from Moe's himself. I called the number on Moira's business card and was promptly summoned to Holcomb Tower. I don't like venturing into Manhattan. It is the capital of weird and the new world— Beings of immense power walk the streets beneath its gleaming skyscrapers. Terrible schemes are hatched behind doors and offices with prestigious addresses. And I'm not just talking about the Wall Street financiers. Dangerous men, women, and creatures of all kinds congregate there. And they make Brooklyn feel like a sleepy suburb. I try to keep my visits into the Big Apple's rotten core brief and infrequent. But sometimes things can't be helped. I was ushered into a large office furnished with a mismatched collection of items of art and antiquity. 
They may not have fit together particularly well, but they all shared one common trait, hefty price tags. A supersized mahogany desk was installed in the center of the room. Leaning back in a lambskin office chair was the man himself. Bradley Holcomb, real estate king of New York, reality TV host, and, at least in his own mind, a curator of the upwardly mobile lifestyle. His name, slapped indiscriminately on everything from condo developments to Cologne, was the gilded standard for the bourgeoisie. Even surrounded by the opulence of his office, Holcomb looked less impressive in person than he did on TV. They always do. "'Mr. Brent,' he said, studying me intently. "'Thank you for coming to see me on such short notice. Also, forgive me for staring. All kinds of important people visit my office, but I've never had the pleasure of meeting a wizard before. I imagined you to be—' He paused, looking for the right words to express his disappointment with my being so ordinary. "'Older.' In my experience, people rarely live up to their hype, I said. Holcomb either chose to ignore the barb or it went over his head. He continued to ogle me as though I was some kind of circus freak. What is it that I can do for you, Mr. Holcomb? I prodded. I've been working on a fascinating project, he said, snapping out of it. I acquired a nice plot of land adjacent to Marine Park— Beautiful space, naturally secluded, yet right off the Belt Parkway, so it's easy to reach. I'm building a high-end theme resort there. Gonna make the place look like ancient Rome. Holcomb's face lit up and his entire demeanor shifted when he started talking about his hotel. He became almost likable. It'll be a perfect combination of classic style and ultra-modern amenities— I'm even building a miniature copy of the Colosseum uh, with a boxing ring right in the center. Holcomb's Rome is going to make theme hotels in Vegas and Atlantic City look like gaudy McMansions in comparison. I nodded patiently. Holcomb would know a thing or two about gaudy. It took forever to get the permits, he said. But once construction began, strange things started to happen. Floor plans went missing from a locked safe... Every worker on the demolition crew simultaneously came down with terrible headaches. Sabotage of all kinds has been derailing the project. Holcomb reached for a stress ball on his desk and squeezed it hard. I'm a practical man, not taken to flights of fancy. When it was first suggested to me that my problems were supernatural in origin, I laughed it off. But I'm not laughing any longer. I tripled security, accomplishing exactly nothing. Then a business associate recommended that I hire O'Leary as an arcane consultant. She was the one who filled me in on the crazy stuff going on in the world that we muggles aren't supposed to know about. We prefer to call you ungifted, I said. Whatever works, said Holcomb. O'Leary told me about the watch and helped me get in touch with Mr. Mose. It wasn't all that difficult to persuade him. Money, it seems, can buy magic just like any other service. Mose must have charged this arrogant fat cat through the nose to make me do house calls like some sort of plumber. Still, someone was using magic to mess with the ungifted. Exactly the kind of thing the watch was created to guard against. The fact that the victim was Holcomb didn't obviate my obligation to look into the matter. All right, I said. Fetch whatever maps and floor plans for this thing that weren't stolen from your safe, and let's take a look. Perched between Marine Park and the coastline of Deep Creek 
was one of the last undeveloped areas remaining in the borough of Brooklyn. Thousands of people drove past it every day, commuting via the always busy Belt Parkway. There was no off-ramp by Marine Park. Drivers could only marvel from afar the glimpses of primordial wilderness and the scenic view of the Atlantic. Holcomb would change that. His plans called for building an Exit 10 off Belt Parkway, which would deliver travelers right to his new hotel's front door. For now, I had to drive all the way to the Flatbush Avenue exit, park at the Gateway Marina, and walk. I spent several unpleasant hours slogging around Holcomb's construction site. Whoever was messing with the project was thorough, devious, and definitely supernatural. Signs of arcane interference were everywhere. Tree trunks had runes carved into their bark. Enchantments spun like shimmering spiderwebs hung from the tree branches, and stones covered with glyphs were spread along the sandy beach. An ancient magic was at work, intent on disrupting the construction. It was effective and considerably unpleasant, but never lethal. This magic was different from the types I'd encountered in the past. I was clueless as to what manner of creature was protecting its territory, but had a pretty good idea of how to flush it out. I set to disarming the trickster traps and clearing the area of supernatural hindrances. It was slow going. With no magic of my own, I had to rely on various arcane tools. Each action that any other gifted could perform by merely flexing their abilities was taking me minutes of careful tinkering with artifacts that operated on other people's stored power. My feet got wet, and the bottom of my trench coat was caked with mud. I cursed as the wild shrubs scraped against my skin. There's a reason I choose to live in an urban environment. I'll take a paved road over a grassy path any day of the week. You shouldn't do that. I was knee-deep in disrupting a particularly elaborate enchantment when a voice caught me by surprise. I spun around to see who managed to sneak up on me. It was a man in his late forties, dressed in an earth-toned windbreaker, tough khaki pants, and hiking boots. He was far better prepared for an excursion to this area than I. Don't break it, he said. Do you have any idea how much effort goes into weaving an enchantment like this one? It'll take us weeks to repair all the damage you've caused today. Repair? I said. Oh, no, no. We can't have that. The watch takes a dim view of magic being used against the ungifted. I know who you are and what you represent, Mr. Brent said the stranger. My people have deep respect for the watch. It's a grave disappointment that you choose to side against us. Back up for a moment, I said. I'm not picking any sides. I don't even know who or what I'm dealing with, and I don't like that one bit. Care to bring me up to speed? My name is Graham Murray. I sit on the ruling council of the Circle of the Sacred Oak. He saw a blank expression on my face and elaborated. We are druids, Mr. Brent. I displayed my encyclopedic and brain command of history. I thought druids were, you know, extinct. There are still a few of us around, carrying on the traditions of our forefathers. Walk with me, Mr. Brent, and I will endeavor to, as you put it, bring you up to speed. The druid headed deeper into the brush. I followed him, the still active enchantment threads glowing faintly behind us. "'My people ruled the British Isles since the beginning of history,' said Murray. "'Openly at first, then behind the scenes, after the Romans came. "'But things were changing. 
With time, our numbers and influence began to wane. To make matters worse, the ruling council got us mired in a war against the Cabal in the 1700s. I'd heard about the Cabal before. It was a shady organization of European mystics and sorcerers. They were vastly powerful in the Victorian era and still influential in modern day. The Watch and Cabal had butted heads many a time in the past. The Cabal devastated us. Druids were hunted in Britain and Ireland like common criminals. Chivot and Keane, one of the few of the ruling council who opposed the war, gathered her remaining loyalists and set sail for the New World. We walked toward the far end of the property near the edge of Marine Park. Druids share a bond with the land. Most would rather die than abandon their sacred groves. To convince so many of us to leave the British Isles to begin life anew elsewhere was a gargantuan feat. Chivot and Keane wasn't merely a leader. She was our founder, our savior, as important to us as Jesus and Muhammad are to their followers. We arrived at a small clearing surrounded by ancient oak trees overgrown with mistletoe. This, said Murray, is Chavon Keen's final resting place. It's the one sacred site for my people in exile, and we'll do whatever we have to to prevent anyone, gifted or ungifted, from bulldozing it down. Batuva stood quietly for a moment and listened as the Atlantic breeze rustled the yellowing leaves in nature's requiem for the queen of the druids. It took some doing, but I managed to set up a meeting between Holcomb and the Druids. We sat in the conference room of a nondescript hotel by the airport. Holcomb probably didn't feel comfortable inviting a bunch of hostile gifted into his home office. He wouldn't even take my calls, leaving it up to O'Leary to handle the preliminary negotiations. The man was a big fan of delegating, at least according to his reality TV show. To her credit, O'Leary got him to consider the druid side of things enough to come meet with the ruling council of the Circle of the Sacred Oak. Six rather ordinary-looking men and women, my new pal Graham among them, sat around the large oval table broadcasting various degrees of annoyance, frustration, and overall bad karma. Holcomb was running late, really late. The druid leaders didn't appreciate being made to wait, Several of them took to shooting venomous glances my way, as though the real estate mogul's tardiness was somehow my fault. I kept a neutral expression, hating every minute of it. After what felt like hours, the conference room door finally swung open to admit Moira O'Leary and a dozen grim-looking men. They fanned out in a semicircle, taking positions against the walls and blocking the entrance. Every one of them was gifted, and every one of them was heavily armed. They aimed their weapons at the druids. "'What is the meaning of this?' demanded a councilman. "'Where is Holcomb?' "'He won't be coming,' O'Leary said. "'Mr. Holcomb has left it up to me to deal with this nuisance.' She turned her attention to me. "'I want to thank you, Conrad, for flushing out the pagan scum.' We'll take it from here. You should leave. Now. The double-dealing two-faced mercenary had played me, and I was just beginning to like her. These people are here to negotiate. I remained seated, 
so O'Leary and her goons couldn't see me searching through the pockets of my coat. You wouldn't want to jeopardize that with some sort of rash vigilante action. O'Leary laughed. Rash? We've been hunting their kind for centuries. Don't let the nature-loving act fool you. They are terrorists, ruthless killers of women and children. They've waged a guerrilla war against the Cabal for several hundred years, and their hands are elbow-deep in blood. So she was a Cabal agent, and the hate in her voice sounded genuine. I wish I hadn't gotten out of bed that morning. Our faction wants no part of your war, said Graham. Our ancestors traveled across the ocean so that we could live at peace. These people are civilians, Moira. Look at them. They didn't try to hurt Holcomb's workers, and there's certainly no threat to the cabal. I smiled and waved my right hand, palm out. Come on. You know these aren't the druids you're looking for. No one even chuckled. So much for diffusing the situation with humor. Do keep in mind that these negotiations are guaranteed by the watch. I'm sure both of us would rather avoid the possibility of friction between our organizations. O'Leary is having none of that. We have no quarrel with your band of do-gooders, so long as you stay out of our way. You're free to go and play at policemen somewhere else. But if you stay, you die with them. The smart move would have been to take her up on her offer. I had no business interfering in a centuries-old war. Besides, what chance did I have against a dozen gifted? Yet I couldn't bring myself to walk out and leave six innocent people to their doom. After years of making careful, calculated decisions, I surprised myself by abandoning caution and following my gut. You really shouldn't have called me a cop, I said, rising from the chair. It upsets me. Before anyone could react, I drew a pencil-thin turquoise glass vial from one of my pockets and threw it as hard as I could against the wall. The vial shattered, unleashing a Chinook wind bottled inside. Powerful gusts wreaked havoc in the confines of the room. Hurricane-like currents lifted people and chairs from the ground. Intense fog made it impossible to see beyond arm's length. The air had become hot and moist, as though someone had run a long, steamy shower. The pandemonium around me kept the bad guys busy and gave me a chance to set up a portal. Transportation magic is unreliable and takes at least a dozen heartbeats to activate. What's worse, a portal charm is only good for a single, one-way trip and very difficult to replace. I winced as I activated it, but using up a prized possession was better than facing a cabal army. Someone managed to open the conference room door, and the Chinook swooshed out into the hallway. As the fog began to dissipate, everyone could see a portal the size of a manhole cover floating a few feet above the floor. Go! I shouted at the druids, while ripping a golden bracelet off my wrist. The action triggered a force barrier, cutting off the other half of the room. That particular toy was reusable, but it would take four lunar months to recharge. This mess was costing me dearly. Druids stumbled toward the portal, but the Cabal mages got their act together. They unleashed a coordinated attack on the barrier, and within seconds it began to collapse. I desperately tried to think of a way to buy us more time, but had no trinkets capable of stopping a dozen hostile gifted working in concert. 
a druid woman in her early fifties turned around. In a few steps she was at the barrier, touching it lightly with her fingertips. Her entire body began to shimmer as she worked her own magic. Infused with whatever power she lent it, the barrier strengthened despite the continued attack from the other side. She appeared calm, almost serene, but I could see the new wrinkles appear on her face and her hair visibly turning gray as she gave up her life force to maintain the barrier. The rest of the druids were through the portal now. It was beginning to wobble and would dissipate soon. I took one last look at the woman who did not hesitate for even a moment before choosing to sacrifice herself in order to save her people. A small part of me wanted to stay, to fight and probably die alongside her once the barrier failed. But I knew better. I was no hero. I was just a guy with a few arcane gadgets and lots of bravado. I hurled myself into the portal, fervently hoping that its erratic magic wouldn't teleport me into a concrete wall. The portal spat me out in a parking lot. The five druids were just getting their bearings when I arrived. Graham helped me up. Thank you, he said, as I brushed dust off my coat. It seems you've chosen a side after all. Couldn't just walk out on you a lot. Would have been bad for my reputation. We watched the portal flicker and finally collapse. No one else would be coming through. They got Alice, said one of the druids, tears rolling down his cheeks. This can't be left unanswered. We must gather everyone, said another. Sound the call. We will march to the Holcomb Tower and bring it down on the treacherous bastard's head. Hold on, I said. Holcomb isn't gifted. He told me that until a week ago he didn't even know our kind existed. I don't buy him as a member of the Cabal. You only have his word for that, said Graham. I've watched this guy on TV, I said. He isn't that good a liar. I bet O'Leary set up the trap by herself and never even told him about you. We'll rip the truth out of him, growled another druid. Everyone began to speak at once. The druids are primed to take some sort of action, anything to avenge Alice and lash out at their persecutors. Then my phone rang, and O'Leary's number displayed in the caller ID. Yeah, I grunted, taking a few steps away from the druids. Bent on their revenge plans, they barely noticed. That was very impressive, O'Leary said, with that hint of cheerful amusement in her voice I would find endearing, had she not just betrayed and then tried to kill me. I suppose I should have expected no less. What do you want? For once I wasn't in the mood for banter. I assume you're still with the druids, said O'Leary. I want you to pass along a message. We'll be waiting for them at the tomb of their precious founder. If they don't show by sunset, we'll burn down the trees, demolish the stones, then dig up her grave, and spend a fun evening coming up with ways to desecrate the remains. That's a big mistake, I told her. You and your people should leave town before the watch stomps on you hard. Nonsense, she said. Mose will never get the watch involved. After all, the druids were the ones picking on the ungifted. I'm merely trying to set things right on behalf of Mr. Holcomb. Whatever other disagreements my organization may have with the druids falls well outside the watch's purview. I said nothing. 
hating the fact that she was right. I suspect, she went on, that Mose won't be too pleased with you for siding with them just now. So why don't you be a good boy and give the tree huggers my message? They won't be able to resist trying to protect their sacred swamp, and we'll mop em up. Everybody wins. Mose doesn't even have to know about your error in judgment. What do you say? I'll pass the message along, I conceded. This isn't over. She started to say something snide, but I ended the call. I relayed the message to the druids and contemplated my next move. There were less than four hours of daylight remaining. O'Leary's plan was working perfectly. Compelled to defend what they believed in, the druids showed up in force, like so many lambs to slaughter. Nearly thirty men and women joined their leaders in an effort to protect their... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Sacred ground. They were all gifted. But they were no warriors. No match for the hardened cabal mercenaries. I walked with them, prodding along a prisoner. By my side, disheveled and dragging his Italian loafers through the brown mud, was Bradley Holcomb. Moira O'Leary and her people waited for us at Chavot and Keene's gravesite. There were nearly three dozen cabal fighters this time, weapons and magic at the ready. They parted to let our procession approach. "'I've got your boss,' I told O'Leary once we reached the clearing. I shoved Holcomb back into the arms of several druids. "'If any fighting takes place here,' I'll make sure he's among the first to die. So why don't we talk things out instead? You're a fool, said O'Leary, and a desperate fool at that. I heard that you abducted Holcomb from his office in broad daylight. Talk about abusing the ungifted. And for what? Did you really think that saving his skin would get me to back off? Now that we've lured out the druids, Holcomb is useless to me. Bradley Holcomb straightened up, stepped forward, and looked down his nose at O'Leary. "'You were right, Mr. Brent,' he said. 
It appears my arcane security consultant never had my best interests at heart after all. Moira, Holcomb said with as much aplomb and dignity as he could muster under the circumstances, you're fired. It was all we needed to hear. Holcomb stepped back into the relative safety of the cluster of druids, and four of my fellow members of the watch dropped their concealment spell. I would take any two of them against all the cabal goons present. Together they were an overwhelming force. It should make any sensible gifted think twice. Cabal agent Moira O'Leary wasn't the sensible type. O'Leary signaled her men to attack. The tranquil burial site turned into a war zone. Fireballs, curses, and bullets flew as both sides unleashed everything they had at each other. Terry Winter of Queens wielded an enchanted staff so powerful you could physically feel the presence of its magic. She moved gracefully, jabbing at enemies and dodging their attacks in fluid, ballet-like motion. Father Mancini from Staten Island held a large silver cross with sharpened edges in one hand and a forty-four magnum revolver in the other. He had no trouble reconciling his arcane ability with his faith, and Lord help any gifted sinner who got in his way. The good priest stood his ground, striking down any cabal fighters within reach while quoting scripture. Gord from the Bronx stood seven feet tall, courtesy of the giant blood somewhere deep in his family's Romany past. He carried a sawed-off shotgun that could blast through any obstacle, physical or magical. Gord fired off a few shots, then took several large strides that placed him in the midst of the enemy. He used his shotgun as a club, tossing men around like ragdolls. Manhattan's John Smith stood empty-handed and smiled nastily at his enemies, his own magic far more powerful than any mere weapon. Elegant in a three-piece Armani suit and a white silk scarf tied around his neck, which contrasted smartly against his ebony skin, John cast spell after spell, conjuring ephemeral horrors. They materialized in the air, swooping from above to maul the cabal mages with their ghostly fangs and claws. I used whatever protective charms and devices I had to keep Holcomb and myself out of harm's way, but my supplies were running out fast, and Cabal mages were about to corner us. Suddenly a ten-foot monster appeared before them, gnashing its teeth and growling loud enough to be heard over the sounds of the fighting. Cabal goons took a good look at it, and decided that they were needed elsewhere in the battlefield. I would have to recapture the Sumatran changeling after this was over. Unable to defend against the far superior talents of the Watch, those Cabal fighters that could still move broke ranks and fled. I watched O'Leary and a handful of her people escape through a portal similar to the one I'd used earlier. After being routed so thoroughly, I didn't expect to be seeing her again any time soon. "'Guess this means you owe each of us one for a change,' said Father Mancini afterwards. "'That,' added Terry Winter, "'and you're the one who has to explain this mess to Mose. "'He won't be pleased about being kept out of the loop. "'I think I'll go ahead and skip that meeting entirely.' Reporting to Mose wasn't something I looked forward to. This was definitely one of those scenarios where asking forgiveness was easier than asking permission. The big man wouldn't have approved, and my theory about Moira becoming fair game for the watch, once Holcomb severed his connection with her, was tenuous at best. Still, everything worked out, and Mose wasn't the type to punish success. I walked over to Graham and the rest of the council. Holcomb was talking at them faster than a used car salesman. "'It's going to be great,' he said. "'Just picture it. Holcomb's Stonehenge. 
We'll build a replica of those standing stones instead of the Colosseum. Make the hotel Druid-themed. We'll leave this shrine alone and fence it off from the tourists. Your people can come and go whenever they please, and no one will be the wiser. Holcomb was actually making sense. The Druids must have thought so, too. They were listening intently to what the real estate mogul had to say. After all, who would suspect one of Holcomb's resorts to be anything more than it appeared? Besides, Holcomb's legal ownership of the site would help secure the watch's protection, in case the Cabal ever decided to take another run at the Druids. I left them to talk business. Holcomb might not have been gifted, but he sure was good at his job. The man was about to convince an ancient order to let him build a theme resort around their sacred site, and if that sort of salesmanship doesn't take a bit of magic, I don't know what does. I just love the character Conrad and his fearless resolve. Here's a guy living in a world where a small percentage of the population can see and use magic, but he's only able to see it. Yet he finds himself working for The Watch, an organization whose sole purpose is to deal with the magical realm, relying on magical talismans and charms and whatever else he can manage, and he keeps his disability from his superiors, all the while being a general badass, a regular Batman among the magically gifted. Time to move on to our next story, Lydia Millet's Snow White Rose Red. Those of you familiar with the Brothers Grimm and their fairy tales might recognize this title. Admittedly, my first thought, based on the title, was that perhaps this is some hybrid of Snow White and Little Red Riding Hood. However, as I read the story, it became increasingly clear that this is definitely not that. A little research revealed that this is, in fact, a separate tale all its own, and having read a summary of the original, I can safely say Lydia has written a wonderful retelling of a rather grim tale. Yeah, I went there. A little about Lydia. Ms. Millet is the author of 13 works of fiction, most recently Mermaids in Paradise, a satire about a couple honeymooning in the Caribbean who discover strange creatures in a coral reef. Her previous books include the novel Magnificent, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle and Los Angeles Times Book Awards, My Happy Life, which won the Penn USA Fiction Award, and a story collection called Love in Infant Monkeys that was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. She lives in the Arizona desert and works at the Center for Biological Diversity. You can find her online at www.lydiamillet.net. Snow White Rose Red is narrated for us today by James Silverstein. James is a budding author and role-playing game designer with credits from 7th Sea and Stargate RPG lines. He's worked on the upcoming Karen RPG, as well as a series of stories about a 1940s private eye in a city of the undead. James feels that there are always more amazing stories that need to be told, and he writes, narrates, and runs games to share them with the world. He loves speculative fiction, noir detective tales, and pulp fantasy, and is honored to be a returning reader in the District of Wonders. So sit back and relax while James Silverstein reads Snow White, Rose Red by Lydia Millet. <laughs> I met the girls and instantly liked the girls. Of course I liked the girls. A girl is better than a feast. This was before the arrest, before the indictment and the media stories. The girls were sisters, as you may know, and lived during the summer in one of those 
upstate mansions built by the robber barons who made their fortunes off railroads and steel and unfair business practices. It was the lower peaks of the Adirondacks, the southern part with glassy lakes and green slopes and white-spotted fawns. The girls, who were innocent in the glut of their wealth because they'd never known anything else, called their summer house The Cottage, to distinguish it from The Apartment, which was a 10,000-square-foot penthouse on Fifth Avenue near Washington Square Park. Their father was in real estate, but no one ever saw him. Uh, correction. From time to time we caught sight of him briefly, the girls and I, getting in from or out of a long, gleaming car. Once from the woods I spotted him walking down to the dock in a pale gray suit, his phone held to his ear. He looked like a groom doll on a wedding cake. I wanted to tear his legs off. At twilight, on the grounds of the massive yet log-cabin-style robber baron mansion, dozens of deer stood around, their graceful necks lowered eating the grass. There's an abundance of deer up there due to the hunters who have killed off all the animals that were supposed to be preying on them. So, the deer. And the girls, equally graceful with their light carrying laughter and long limbs, spun glow-in-the-dark hula hoops or played croquet with ancient peeling mallets as the purple dusk fell. The older one had honey-colored hair and blue eyes. The younger had brown hair, and her eyes were a shade of amber. They hardly looked like sisters, but they were. The blonde was called Naive, Spanish for snow, and the brunette was Rosa, but she went by Rose. Their mother, a former ballerina from Madrid who was both anorexic and mentally slow, had named them, but she often forgot their names. We only met because I came out of the woods one night. I came out of the woods and walked right across the rolling lawn, scattering the bambies. The sun was setting over the lake, and a light breeze rippled the water. I admit, the girls appeared frightened. What Rosa told me later was this, that the first few seconds, they actually mistook me for a bear. They'd never seen a homeless guy before. They were that sheltered, even though they lived in downtown Manhattan. Trust me, it, it can be done. And though I wasn't technically homeless, I had that same dirty hirsute aspect. I'm not a small man, but tall and barrel-chested, and that June evening I wore filthy clothes and had a long beard and needed badly to bathe in the lake. I had a home in the forest, or a temporary shelter anyway, but to girls that pampered and young, there's no perceptible difference between an aging hippie and a transient. So, they were frightened at first. But I held up my hands as I walked to the porch. The cottage had a wide wraparound porch, stone-floored, with swings, chairs, rugs, and potted plants. The girls retreated partway up the stairs and stood there uncertainly on the steps in their simple cotton frocks, clutching a frisbee and a skipping rope. I held up my hands like a man who was surrendering. I was lucky the help wasn't around, and the mother, as usual, had gone to bed early. If anyone else had been there, the cook, for one, who was a domineering type, they probably would have run me off. I'd had too much to drink, of course. It was my pastime, then. The summer before my divorce, a strange and isolated time. I was camped out in an old airplane hangar on one of the smaller lakes, and 
Now and then I hitched into town, bought some booze and groceries, and prayed not to run into my estranged wife. We had our own more modest summer place nearby. What I'd done was I'd disappeared. I didn't want my wife to know where I'd gone. It was the only trick I had left, hiding and vanishing. I got some meager satisfaction from an idea I had of her not knowing whether I lived or died. Her wondering if, maybe, defying all her expectations, I'd left my dull old self behind and flown off to a distant and unknown country. Those girls were pretty good. Plenty of rich girls aren't, we all know that, but those two girls were innocent. I don't know how they turned out that way, with their mother who wasn't all there and their father who wasn't there at all. That goodness came from them like milk from a rock. Snow, as I came to call her, because I couldn't be bothered to pronounce her real name, mostly liked books, and sat in the shade of the porch on afternoons reading. Her sister was more social and spent her time talking to everyone. She rode her bicycle to an old folks' home most days and helped the people there. As I stood on the lawn looking up at them, I noticed something I hadn't seen from a distance. The girl's skin glowed. Both of them had this luminous kind of skin. That clear, young skin is a part of what makes girls look so edible. I asked them not to be afraid. I told them my name, and after a few moments they seemed to relax and told me theirs. They had a dog, an old Irish setter who lay around and barely raised his tail even for flies. I sat down on the steps and petted the dog after a while. So we were friends. Of course, I wouldn't have had a chance if the girls hadn't been left on their own so much. Now and then, a friend their own age would come up from the city to visit, and I didn't intrude upon them then. But those visits were rare. Often at dusk or dawn, when the deer and the girls were out, I was the only company they had. I kept a low profile and didn't throw the frisbee back and forth with them in case someone could see us from the house. Usually we stood together and we talked, a little out of sight. Once or twice they sat on the end of the dock and trailed their feet through the water, and I swam, only my head above the darkening surface. From the high bedroom windows of the cottage's second floor, that wouldn't have looked like anything. The girls were kind to me. They let me use the canoes in the boathouse, even encouraged me, and some mornings I would row out to a hidden bay and sit and drift, trying to idly fish in the shade of a red pine. There were some old rods in the boathouse, and since I had none of my own, I used to borrow them. Snow would leave me sandwiches, or sometimes bring a bowl of ice cream onto the porch. Rose offered small hotel bottles of shampoo and told me to use them. These girls were both honest. Once Snow said to me, You smell not too good. Did you know? I told her that I washed my clothes wherever I could, in the coin laundry, in town, or the lake. I also tried to swim and use soap on myself, but now and then I lost track and missed a day or two. I wish you wouldn't, Snow said wistfully. My back hurt from sleeping on the cement floor of the hangar, and I ended up asking the sisters for aspirin. For several days my back and neck had been sore, and the pills took off the worst edge of the pain, but that was all. Then Rose said I should sleep in the cottage, which had more bedrooms than could easily be counted. There was a certain servant's part of the house, they said, 
which had its own entrance, and none of the help used it. I could sneak in at night and sleep in a comfortable bed, which had down pillows and high thread-count sheets. I protested at first. I had some fear I'd run into one of the other members of the household, but it was silent when I snuck in there at night after the girls had gone to bed. It was so quiet that it almost seemed to me like they lived there by themselves, and food and water were furnished to them by invisible hands. The bed was a nice change from concrete floors, so nice I almost questioned my recent course in life, hunkering down in the hangar unshaved and unwashed, hiding from my soon-to-be ex-wife. But then I came full circle. The hiding couldn't be so wrong, for it had brought me here, to this great mansion with its soft sheets and gentle girls. After that I often slipped in by the servants' narrow stairs and slept in my private room tucked up under the roof. I set my wristwatch alarm and crept out at the crack of dawn. The cottage doors were never locked during the summer months. The family was always there, the family or the staff. I watched them from the shadows whenever I could. The Mexican groundskeeper rode around on his lawn tractor uselessly, mowing nothing, happy to sit aloft. The live-in maid smoked cigarettes near the garden shed and sometimes slipped away to have sex with him in the bushes. One day the mother had a brief flash of life and donned her sparkling tennis whites. She ran outside and hit a few balls feebly with Rose on the clay tennis court. Meanwhile, Snow on the sidelines took snapshots for the family album. It was a rare occasion to see the mother outside in the sun, acting alive like that. But only fifteen minutes passed before the mother went inside again, apparently angry or depressed. She threw her racket down and blurted something that I couldn't quite make out. I saw the girls' faces as they watched her go. Their faces were both sad and calm. The girls were resigned to this beautiful, semi-retarded mother with her spidery limbs and odd tantrums. Perhaps she never was a ballerina, I thought to myself. There aren't too many retarded ballerinas in the world, is my perception of the thing, although there certainly are a few who, like the mother, starve themselves. That evening around dusk the girls came swimming with me in the lake. Rose lathered my hair up with shampoo. It was one of the only times I felt the sisters touch. They weren't too prone to physical contact. They hadn't grown up with affection, and also I was an older, often bad-smelling man quite unattractive to them. No doubt they were afraid that any touching would be mistaken for an invitation. But on this occasion, beyond the end of the dock, Rose ducked my head under, laughing, and when I came up sputtering and tried to catch my breath, Snow pushed my head under again, and both of them were playfully drowning me. We were happy. Then Rose said, What would he look like with no beard? Snow looked at me, too, considering, and then climbed up onto the dock, toweled off, and ran into the house. She came back in a minute with shaving equipment. She even had scissors. Clearly no razor by itself would be up to the task, and an old hand mirror of heavy silver. Snow cut off the part of the beard that hung. Then they watched while I sat in the shadows and, with Rose holding up the mirror, shaved off the stubble that was left. "'He's not that bad,' she said when I was done. I dipped my face under and came up again, wiping the water away from my eyes, the flecks of girl-scented shaving foam floating. He looks like that actor, 
said Snow, cocking her head. You know, that big French one with the crooked nose. You look like that actor, concurred Rose, nodding. He's sort of ugly, said Snow, and you have to like him. Exactly, said Rose. Ugly, like you, but also likable, said her older sister. Girls, I said ruefully, you're going to have to find a way to tell the truth a little less often. Why? asked Snow. Well, for one thing, it hurts people's feelings. We're sorry, said Rose. We didn't mean to. I know, I said. I know. And B, if you get in this habit of telling men the truth, you'll never find true love and get married. I won't get married anyway, said Rose. I won't either, said Snow. How do you know? I asked. It seems really stupid, said Snow. Like cutting off your leg, said Rose. Every marriage is different, I said. Get out, said Snow. Well, you're supposed to be married, said Rose. But now your wife likes someone better. So soon you won't be any more. More or less accurate, I conceded. Then why are you defending it? asked Snow. Once you were practically normal, added Rose. But now you carry a roll of toilet paper around in a greasy, disgusting backpack. And she shuddered visibly. We're just saying, said Snow, almost apologetic. It was then we heard a rare sound, at least rare to us in the tranquility of those summer evenings. Car tires crunching on gravel in front of the house. No way, breathed Snow. Daddy, said Rose. It's the third time this whole summer, said Snow. The first time lasted for an hour, Rose told me. The second was on my birthday, said Snow. He stayed for fifteen minutes. He brought me a gift certificate. I tensed up, worried I'd get caught with them. My clothes were heaped on the bank except for the boxer shorts I wore. There was a clean line of sight if he came around the corner. But I had other clothes in the hangar, so all I had to do was swim away swim across to the part of the shore that was hidden from the house by trees, and from there retreat to my hangar. "'I should go,' I said. "'Don't worry. We'll totally distract him,' said Rose. They climbed up onto the docks, legs dripping. Towels swirled up around their shoulders, feet left wet prints on the dry wood before they slipped into flip-flops. Then the girls were headed up the grassy slope, not running, just dutiful.' I felt a rush of thankfulness that I'd never had children to disappoint, though I wished the girls were my own daughters. Even I would have shown in compassion with this gray doll. I didn't have his wealth, but still. I sank down in the water and spied on them, the water line beneath my nose. I kept my mouth clamped shut. The suit was Undertaker Black this time, and I could just make out a silver-colored headset. He talked into the headset as the girls went up the hill to meet him. Rose stepped toward him awkwardly, as though she wanted to embrace, but he held up his hand and shook his head and kept talking, turning around as he paced. She stepped back. It occurred to me that they would be better off if he died, but it was an academic, impersonal thought. It had nothing to do with me. A second later, it also occurred to me that if someone tore the groom in half, the girls would still have his money, but not his cold and persistent disregard. It was painful, on the other hand, the loss of a father. 
even a negligent father, and with the semi-retarded mother on the brink of death surprisingly often, due to repeated self-starving activities which made her subject to sudden hospital visits, the poor girls might be farmed out to relatives. Separated. So, as quickly as I had it, I gave up the idea of murdering him. You know, murder goes through your head sometimes and then goes out again. It's normal, in my opinion. Anyway, the thought had no bearing on subsequent events. After a while, the father stopped talking into his headset mouthpiece. By that time, the girls had already given up and drifted into the house without, as far as I could tell, even a smile of greeting from him. Some fragments of his one-sided conversation floated down to me. A few words in the twilight, value added, deal structure, and possibly red herring. Then he, too, disappeared. What happened later that night was simple, as I would testify. Around one in the morning, as I lay trying to sleep on the hangar floor, my back started to hurt. It hurt a lot, mainly because there was nothing between me and the cracked cement but a threadbare sleeping bag I filched from a goodwill bin in Albany. During the vanishing act, I hadn't wanted to reveal myself by using my joint account ATM card, and I had no painkillers left from the prescription stash the girls had given me. So, finally, driven by discomfort, I crept out onto the dirt road, pain shooting through my back, grasping my heavy, antique flashlight. There was a dim glow in the ground-floor windows of the mansion where the lamps had been left on, but through those windows I could see no one was reading by their light. The family was sleeping. So I went around behind the house and up the servants' stairs, taking off my shoes and walking in my sock feet. I found my room as usual and went to sleep myself, so relieved by the comfort of the bed that I forgot my back. But, presently, I was woken up. There was a loud, terrible noise. Blearily, I didn't recognize it at first. I thought it was a cat, in pain or trying to mate. Then I understood it was human. Human and female. I sat right up, jolted with fear for those sweet girls. I had to do something. So I grabbed my flashlight and ran out into the corridor. I didn't know the house at all, only the route to my secret cubby, so I was stumbling down narrow halls like I was in a maze, basically running blind this way and that, trying to follow the screaming. It stopped for a short time, and I faltered, partly in confusion partly out of a growing conviction that the sound wasn't coming from either of the girls. It was too feral and too hoarse. But then it started up again, and I ran, tearing up and down the halls in a panic because I couldn't be sure. Eventually I came out into a wider hall where the lights were ablaze, a long carpet down the middle, and there was the mother. She wore nothing at all and was so emaciated that her jutting ribs resembled zebra stripes. I couldn't help but notice she was shaved completely bare beneath. And there was the father, in seersucker pajamas, who seemed to be choking or suffocating her. They were thrashing around, and she must have been the one screaming, though now his fingers were over her mouth. He had the upper hand, clearly being both a man and not mentally or physically impaired. A fear seized me though behind that fear I was relieved that Snow and Rose were not the targets of this violent assault. 
and without thinking, I threw myself into the fray. The flashlight was the only weapon I had, and as I said, it was heavy. Before I knew it, the groom doll lay upon the ground. The left side of his head stove in. Once we understood the gravity of the situation, we threw ourselves into reviving him. I knelt beside him and performed CPR, which I had learned as a lifeguard in the seventies. Rose, in her frilly teddy bear nightgown, ran to a telephone and called 911. Snow sat, her face solemn, and held one of her father's limp white hands, which I noticed was almost effeminate in the perfection of its manicure. Only the starving mother, still naked, hung back, sitting with her knobby knees raised to her chin against the far wall's wainscoting beneath the pompous portrait of a waddled ancestor. As you may already be aware, if you're the type to follow the crime beat or society news stories, the father did not die. In fact, and this is little known, he came out of the hospital substantially improved. It was as though he'd had a personality alteration, the sort that might follow a frontal lobotomy, for instance. He was more pleasant after he recovered. He had more time for his wife and his children. I even heard from my lawyer that he sought professional help for the mother, not for the retardation, I don't think. There isn't much they can do for that, but for the eating disorder. And me? I never heard from the girls again. Not personally. But they must be better off now, too. Because the father, who'd already made enough money to keep the family in fine linens and silverware for life, was no longer interested in business. That part of his character had simply been removed, either by the impact of the flashlight or the subsequent brain bleed. It wasn't that, as my lawyer assures me, his cognitive capacity was reduced, per se. He still performed adequately in standard aptitude tests. No, it seemed to be more a matter of changed disposition. Myself, I didn't fare so well. It adds up against you when you're an indigent at the time of a felony commission, abusing alcohol, etc., even if the crime was committed in defense of a vulnerable party. And there was the trespass issue. Although the girls, I have to say, did not desert me in my hour of need, they told the police I'd had their full permission to sleep in the house that night. Sadly, due to their ages, eleven and twelve, that testimony did not go far to clear me of the trespass charge. I sometimes dwell upon my last moments with those girls. It's true we sat upon an old carpet discolored by the father's spreading blood between dark painted walls adorned with grim, even judgmental-looking paintings of the girls' dead relatives. It's true our clothing was splattered and gruesome, and the unconscious father was stretched out between us, casting a pall. But I gazed up and around when I'd done all the CPR I could. It was a kind of coma, I guess, though it wouldn't last long once they got him to an emergency room, and I saw the semi-retarded mother. Even a ballerina, I remembered thinking, did not deserve to be asphyxiated, and I was still glad I'd come to her aid. Now she was staring at me with eyes as big as saucers, murmuring something in her native tongue. She spoke the dialect of Spanish, where everyone has a lisp. I saw Snow, whose lovely face lit from within, bore the light, drying tracks of tears, and the vibrant rose, nervous, and biting her nails beside a Tiffany table lamp, effulgent with orange-pink roses. And I was overcome 
with a curious feeling of belonging and satisfaction, as though I'd eaten a full meal and was preparing now for a long winter sleep. With the father lying inert between us in his blue and white seersucker, I felt we were all where we were meant to be, all posed in a tableau whose composition had been perfectly chosen a very long time ago. Whatever came afterward, I recalled thinking, this was a warm cave full of soft, harmless things. I really liked this one. It reminded me of the movie Regarding Henry with Harrison Ford. Admittedly, until I became aware of the original tale upon which this was based, I was having a hard time reconciling the title with the stories I thought I knew. But not recognizing it and having to research it has opened my eyes to a whole slew of other brothers' grim fairy tales I know next to nothing about. You can be sure I'll be spending some of my precious time reading more of both Brothers Grimm and Lydia Millet. Speaking of time slipping by, it is time for me to hand the scepter of control back to our illustrious Nicola Seton Clark. Nicola will be returning to her role as the voice of Triple F beginning next week. And while I've been happy to lend my voice and comments to our show, I'm sure everyone will be delighted to have Nicola back in charge. Please remember that Farfetch Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. As always, if you like what you hear at Farfetch Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website as well. Keep in mind that sometimes a demon is not a demon, and occasionally a potential tragedy can end up being a blessing in disguise. And thank you, Nicola, for giving me a chance to contribute in such a meaningful way. Until next week, take care. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.